But once again, Captain Hindsight comes to this House and attacks the government for doing exactly what he urged us to do 18 months ago. Lots of words, lots of bluster, no answers. Uh, uh, word of warning. Word of warning, Prime Minister. That's not going to work with the police. <laughs> Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to the Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name's Conor Matcher. I'm the Deputy Political Editor at The Paper. And with me, as always this week, is Alistair Grant, our Political Editor, Hannah Brown, our Political Correspondent. And you will also hear from our Westminster Correspondent, Alex Brown, later on, giving us an update on Partygate. But the big story, um, arguably coming in late is uh, ScotRail and uh, the ongoing pay dispute. Um, The Scotsman led the way with the reporting on this, um, announcing uh, or revealing the plans for a temporary timetable early on this week. That was our colleagues, Martin McLaughlin and Alistair Dalton. Um, And that's had big political fallout throughout the week, led FMQs on Thursday. Um, Alistair, get us up to date with what the hell is going on. Yeah, so this is the news that ScotRail is reducing weekday services by a third from Monday um, because of this dispute with the Aslef train drivers union. So drivers recently turned down, I think I'm right in saying a 2.2% pay offer and are refusing to undertake overtime or rest day working. Uh, So this kind of disruption will see, I think, nearly 700 services a day halted. Um, And it's going to have the temporary timetable will particularly hit those kind of later evening services. So I think the the last weekday service between the Glasgow-Edinburgh mainline, for example, will be 10.15. And to other areas, it'll be much worse than that. So I think some lines are North Berwick, for example. You're talking about 7.40, 8pm, all that kind of thing. So it's it's really early. Um, and I think it's going to have a huge knock-on impact. We've seen kind of nighttime industry representatives already raising concerns. They're coming out of the coronavirus pandemic. They're already struggling. They're trying to kind of make money at a time when they've had their profits really badly hit. And the last thing they want is for people to basically not be able to go for a drink after work, for example, because they've just got to get the last train home. Um, and it's going to probably have a really huge effect actually on the bars around Holyrood. I mean, I know this is not going to get any public sympathy, but <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of journalists, politicians, for example, who don't live in Edinburgh, who need to get trains home, who won't be able to go for that, maybe after work drink on a Thursday or something like that. So I have a huge economic impact in that regard. And I think those businesses will want this to get cleared up as quickly as possible. Jenny Gilruth, the transport minister, has said the Scottish government's kind of working to do that. Nicola Sturgeon at FMQs yesterday saying that, you know, it's vital that training services return to normal as quickly as possible. There's a lot of calls for them to put a date on it to say when that will happen. And of course, it's a it's a pay negotiation, so they can't really do that. But from their point of view, you know, the longer this goes on, the worse it will be. And you're talking about you know, into those, those summer months, you've got major things like the Edinburgh Festival, for example, which, you know, if this 
was still in place during the Edinburgh Festival. It's just nightmarish to imagine that. It would just have a huge, huge impact. Uh, and you've got other events as well, which will definitely take a hit. And I think the other thing to remember about this is um, there's a drive to get people away from their car. You know, we're, we're talking about a climate crisis. The Greens are in government now. And the last thing they want is to create a situation where people are put off using the railway because it's just not feasible for them anymore. Uh, and there's early services as well that are hitting this. So that's a huge thing. It's kind of a blow for green travel. Um, and it also plays into this narrative at the moment that there's a kind of summer of strikes almost coming up. You've got a lot of industrial disputes. You've got a lot of pay concerns. Obviously, inflation is sky high. Pay offers are not keeping up with that at all. Um, teachers threatening to go on strike. I think it's maybe quite likely we'll see industrial action around that come the autumn. Um, and I think that's kind of a difficult situation for the government as well. And obviously, ScotRail was recently nationalised. Um, and at the time it was nationalised, the government were hailing it as this big moment, this kind of new future. You can create a rail service that works for the people of Scotland. And it's just become quite quickly, we've gone into this situation where there's a bit of a, you know, quite a damaging mess. And, it, you know, ScotRail was always going to be a difficult thing for the government. You know, the train services, there's long been concerns over it, not, not only around services, but also around the cost of it. You know, rail travel is extremely expensive for a lot of people. So it's always going to be a hard thing for the government to take control of and to kind of make into a better service. And this is just, you know, a huge blow for them so early on. Um, and I thought FMQs was very difficult for Nicola Sturgeon. You had both the Tories and Labour going in on this. Um, there weren't a lot of answers as I said before, there can't be from the government at the moment in some ways. Uh, and I thought there was a kind of interesting moment where Nicola Sturgeon basically made, you know, she, she had a kind of point in it where she dropped in the fact that train drivers earn £50,000 a year, roughly. Uh, and I thought it was interesting she did that because it was almost like the government were trying to create, you know, a lack of public sympathy for what the train drivers were asking for in terms of a pay rise, uh, which is quite a, it's quite a moment for the government to be doing that, I think. Hannah, you are someone who has the unfortunate joy of taking the trains from Glasgow through to Edinburgh and vice versa on a semi-regular yeah. basis. Um, you also listened to Jenny Gilruth this morning, um, Friday morning, um, about you know what, what the future is and the t potential timetable on it. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it sounds as if they're, they're currently training many drivers up. Mm -hmm. They've got a relatively big shortfall, I think, of about 150, give or take. Um, and they're hoping for around, is it around 40 to be in place in the next few months? And then another, I think, 50 by the end of the year. Um, but Jenny Gilruth was very clear that she doesn't believe this temporary timetable will have to be extended. What what did she say? Keep us up to date. And what's your experience yeah, so I mean, as you mentioned with the, the Glasgow to Edinburgh train journey, it's something that I had to do yesterday and it's something that I was really conscious of. You know, when I was in the office, you remember me going, oh, I need to check my trains. I need to make sure I'm back because this is huge and this is huge as to how it's affecting people. Now, the Transport Minister, Jenny Gilruth, was on Good Morning Scotland this morning, which is Friday for listeners who are listening back. Um, and she was saying that we will absolutely not see a reduced train timetable operate until the summer of 2023. Despite these concerns that like you mentioned over driver shortages, I think there's a shortfall of around 130. Um, and we've been promised that 38 train drivers will be trained uh, at the 
end by the end of summer and then that will go up to 55 by the end of the year and then she said oh and then a a further 100 by June 2023 now this is the huge leap that everyone's going hang on that's still a shortfall until that time but um, according to the minister on uh, Good Morning Scotland there she is adamant that this won't be um, the case that we won't have to wait till June 2023 how they get over those shortages given um, the pay dispute with people and drivers having of course the right not to work overtime Um, yeah we'll just have to see how that pans out but she was very adamant on the radio she was going you know I, I don't want to I don't want this service cut to go on for a minute longer even though We'll see it on Monday onwards, but we're already seeing it in general in Scotland anyway. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's quite interesting because sometimes you think maybe these words don't match up to the actual the actualities of what's happening. Um, and, yeah, on the radio, I mean, I think Neil Bibby was on as well uh, from Labour. He was kind of saying, uh, yeah, it's going to cause absolute chaos and hardships for people who are having to deal with these cuts, kind of what we were saying with, um, yeah, people, not, not even just, I mean, Alistair mentioned people going out for a last drink and, you know, enjoying their time post-pandemic, but there's also, like, a big issue of say women's safety here as well and safety of coming back from a night out it's something that terrifies me and terrifies probably a lot of people who maybe live in cities or live outside of cities uh, a lot of young women who would be traveling back from a night out say they can't get this vital transport this vital access and we're already seeing a, a shortage somewhere in uh, with taxi services so access to transport is so huge for women feeling safe for people in general feeling safe um so it's it's fundamental that the government really clamp down on this um or else yeah loads of people will be put at risk um and yeah i think with with what was being said on gms this morning um i'm not totally convinced that the numbers add up with what we're what we're going to see from the government um after they they took you know, uh, Scott Rail into public ownership was it something like seven weeks ago or something like that? You know, it's been, it's 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 still sure it's still a work in progress. They're still getting their feet under the table. You could argue, um, but yeah, we we need to see change and long term change soon, or else a lot of people, um, yeah, are gonna are gonna feel that impact and are gonna be in danger in in a few cases. There's a big political risk, isn't there, Alistair, around this because it's it's. You know, Scott Rail. Um, I think it was it was said yesterday. You know, it wasn't good enough for Abellio, um, the, the, the former private operator. You know, when when trains were just late. You know, it, by the end of their franchise, towards the end of last year, I mean, anyone who tried to get anywhere in Scotland on a train on the Sunday last year was basically you know hoping for um, a miracle. Um, and we obviously also had the prospect, which was eventually ava- avoided, of no trains running um, during COP26. You know, this is a long-running uh, issue with, with the franchise, um, which is now in government hands. It's now been nationalised. That was a big, you know, victory for the left in Scotland in particular. You know, Labour claim it as a victory as well as the SNP. Um, so there's a lot of political um, potential for for damage, and particularly for Jenny Gilruth, who's relatively new in the role. 
there is. I mean, as I was kind of saying, it's it, it was always going to be difficult for them. And I think there is a question mark whether Abelio would have been able to get away with this level of of cuts. You know, if a, a private kind of profit making company slashing services by a third, if that would have been actually possible for them to do in terms of the the climate in Scotland and and what the Scottish government would have said about that if they had done that. And yet here we find ourselves with a nationalised train service going down that route. Um, and it's worth saying that you know. Nicola Sturgeon in FMQs yesterday was saying that ScotRail believes it's better that people have, you know, certainty. They can go and like they, they at least know these services are definitely going to run. Whereas before the situation was that a lot of services were being cancelled because of these uh, overtime and rest day issues. So it is a huge kind of politically problematic thing for them. Um, and I think, you know, if you listen to the unions, certainly, I know Aslef were saying this, I think in the radio this morning actually as well, and they've said it before that, the Scottish government has handled this appallingly uh, and they kind of talk about political interference, uh, kind of preventing them properly getting around the table. Uh, if you listen to the Scottish government, you know, Nicola Sturgeon is saying that, you know, both sides, ScotRail and the unions have to get around the table and negotiate in good faith. So they're kind of at crossheads of each other. And I think if you've got a union, you know, essentially saying that the Scottish government is handling this appallingly, you know, I think it's, I think I'm right in saying he said something about it being the worst industrial negotiations in 30 years or something like that. And you've, Jenny Gilruth, you know, it's, it's a very difficult situation for her. Uh, and she doesn't have her troubles to seek. You know, this, this is not the only transport problem in Scotland. As we all know, we've talked about in this podcast before, the ferries fiasco, which is ongoing. You know, we've had, you know, a story just in the media in the last, you know, day or so about the MV Hebrides, the, the ship that serves a lot of the, a lot of the Western Isles hitting a pier. And it's, you know, it's just creating a a bad situation, even worse. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's it's extremely difficult for them, especially with stuff like ferries and trains. There are lifeline services; people rely on them. Uh, disruption is felt across Scotland, particularly with trains. Um, so it's something that they will hope gets sorted out sooner rather than later. There was an, there was an interesting. Uh... I think it was one of the last questions that was asked at FNQs yet yesterday, you know, by a, a willing backbencher in the form of uh, former minister um, Fiona Hislop, who stood up and, um, you know, basically said, you know, that the UK government, um, due to their industrial um, uh, disputes with the likes of the other railway union, RMT, um, the, the UK government, um, you know, in a long, long-running dispute with them, with staff at Network Rail, for example, um, and you know, Fiona Hislop stood up and said, "Isn't it right that you know the UK government are to blame for the souring of union relations across the United Kingdom?" I mean, this is a classic SNP tactic, isn't it? Of you know trying to palm off at least some of, if not all, of the blame to the problems that they're facing on the UK government. Does it wash? Well, no, but I suppose, I mean, they're right in the sense that there are problems across the UK. No one's denying that. Uh, and these things probably don't help. But at the end of the day, ScotRail is nationalised. It's now the responsibility of Scottish ministers, albeit ScotRail's run at arm's length. So it's, you know, it's a company that has to get around the table of the unions to start with. But that's what happens when you nationalise a service. It becomes your problem. It becomes your responsibility. And you've got to, you've got to shoulder the responsibility for that. So you can't get out of that. Uh, and essentially, no one really wants to hear about um what the situation is elsewhere. We want this problem to be sorted in Scotland. Hannah, what do you think? I mean, it's it's uh, the SNP rely on a lot of younger votes and particularly people, you know, Glasgow is a, 
is a central example of that. Glasgow is also probably the most well-connected city in terms of railway uh, in the country and the most dependent on it in terms of people getting to and from work. Um, is this going to hurt the SNP, do you think, in their heartlands over time if they can't you know, turn it around quickly? I mean, I think totally. I think as well what you've got with young voters as well, you've got a green vote as well coming into that um, with young voters, say, where I stay in the south side of Glasgow. You've got uh, councillors like Holly Bruce, who won against Susan Aitken, as we know, in first preference. You know, they're all pointing and it's really attractive to young voters to a greener and more well-connected transport service. It's something like um, two-thirds of Glaswegians can't drive. And we rely on transport networks like buses, like trains, all these kind of interconnected... Yeah, because Glasgow is such a huge city that it relies on this. So for young voters, this is huge because younger people are less likely to drive. Um, And... It's also an environmental issue as well. It's not just about mobility. It's about people wanting to be, yeah, keep to their morals and keep to what they believe is a kind of ideal city-scape. So if they don't have those well-connected links, like, you know, we've been promised, I think in Glasgow, the Greens are actually going to do a pilot-free transport uh, programme soon which will be interesting because it's just off the back of, you know, what we were talking about with COP26 and climate change. Uh, You know, we saw, I I don't know if you yourselves had this, but we had the wee zone access cards. I don't know, I'm getting that mixed up with zone cards that we used to have in Glasgow, but there were wee kind of cards that you could put and just tap in and out. And it was brilliant because you could get in and out of Glasgow free on your bus, on trains, and it felt like such a lifesaver. Now, the Greens are totally behind something like this and a lot of young voters and that's what's attracted young voters we've seen that with the buses with the under 22s or threes i think it is um on the bus games um and that that's been really attractive to people and it's that green young vote that yeah is relying on this so if you take that away and if you show failures in your transport services then you're going to immediately deter young people um, and young, mainly green voters, which areas in Glasgow are condensed with. If you look at where the student population is in Glasgow in the West End, if you look at where young people are moving to in the south side of Glasgow, these are all quite um, highly populated areas of green votes, right? So if, yeah, if you take that away, it's going to be, yeah, really, really damaging. And like I said, with the women's safety thing, I just, I don't think you can emphasize that enough. It's a huge pressing issue uh, if your transport service fails um, it's something that worries me it's something that worries young people and I'll, I'll talk about this in a Scotland and Sunday piece pick up a paper uh, this week uh, this weekend where I'll be exploring feminist home planning um, and transport plays a huge aspect of that uh, so we might just touch on some of these failures um, with the train networks at the moment. Do we think we could see Jenny Gilruth resigning over this if it if it drags on and on? I mean, it's it's hard to tell. I mean, she like you mentioned it, she is relatively new in the job, but similar to, uh, and I'm going to mention it again, buffer zones with Mary Todd and as the Women's Health Minister, it's something that a lot of people really genuinely care about and rely on. Um, and if there's a failure in this, it reflects badly on your government and who's in charge. Um, and if she fails here, and it's it's also 
kind of people have been saying from ferries to trains, but it's actually from ferries plus trains. So it's it's not just it, ferry scandals ongoing. I mean, Jenny Golder was still talking about that on the radio uh, this morning. She mentioned the ferries. Uh, it was brought up, and she said, "Oh, you know, it's it's. I, I appreciate that it's difficult for island communities." But difficult and accepting and appreciating this doesn't quite cut it when your services are lacking. Uh, so, yeah, I think there is potential for her to resign. It'll be interesting to see what Alistair thinks, though, on this as well. Uh, I mean, I think I mean, there's always potential for someone to resign if a situation exacerbates and spirals out of control. I mean, it just depends what happens in the coming weeks and months. I think it would have to drag on for quite a while before we got to that stage. Um, and I think... Maybe I'm wrong in this, but I wouldn't expect it to, in the sense that I think they'll they'll have to come to some kind of agreement, uh, particularly before things like the Edinburgh Festival. I mean, that just would seem like, stuff like that just seems like a kind of hard deadline in a way. Um, but who knows? Yeah, if things spiral out of control enough, of course. Um, it's, it's worth mentioning, Hannah, you mentioned buffer zones. Um, Gillian Mackay launched a private member's bill yesterday Um in front of Hollywood, she had a bit of a difficult moment with the press when she was asked about um, Scott Rail and uh, asked her press officer, you know, do I have to? Um, when you know, as in, do I have to answer the question? Um, but we'll we'll talk briefly about you know that that in, in that bill in and of itself. Um, the government's coming under more and more pressure on buffer zones, um, and it, it it feels like an issue that uh, probably won't go away until until they legislate. Yeah, so Gillian Mackay launched the Buffer Zones Bill, which is essentially um, a proposal to implement 150 metre buffer zones, i.e. kind of distance away from clinics uh, and hospitals which provide abortion care. Um, And this is mainly to target a recent rise in anti-abortion protests that have been ongoing. We saw huge numbers outside the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow recently as well at the Sandyford Clinic uh, where people don't just seek abortion services, it's also uh, people who need rape counselling, sexual assault issues, people who are there for um, gender identity clinics and services such as that. So it's really, really targeting a mass amount of people. Women have spoken to me um, who have gone through abortions about the trauma and um, based on based on what these anti-abortion protesters do, you literally have people holding up signs saying abortion is murder and alluding to the fact that these women who not only go through elective abortions but have abortions for medical reasons are murders. It's heinous for a lot of women. It's horrible to go through um, and it's been a real topic of contention. I mean... What we've seen, though, and why it's so um, so problematic is that we've not seen much action from the Scottish government in this. And it's only been in recent days when so many people have been banging the door in the government on this that we've seen kind of certain change implements. So we've got Gillian Mackay's Members Bill, which is coming forward. That's open for consultation. People can go to the, I think, this, um, there's a, I can't quite remember the, the link, but it's abortion. Uh, abortionscot.org or something like that it's abortion.scot I think Um, and you can fill out a consultation form and and say what you think about buffer zones Uh, we've also got an emergency summit 
coming up as well that was called on by Monica Lennon uh, to address the need for buffer zones. So basically a table discussion with um, organisations such as, or campaign groups, sorry, such as Back Off Scotland, who were continuously calling for the implementation of um, buffer zones for quite some time now. They are also a group that uh, have previously said they want the Women's Health Minister, Mary Todd, to resign. Um, so that's quite interesting because Jillian Mackay was saying when she was introducing her private members bill that she didn't think it would be helpful for Marie Todd to resign. Uh, so there's a wee bit of contention there, but it might be in good stead because it might bring in Marie Todd into these discussions. Um, if you know she's got a good working relationship with Gillian Mackay. Um, so that's kind of coming forward. We've not yet got a date as to when this emergency summit will be. Um, but yeah, it should it should go hand with what we're seeing with the um, yeah the private members bill that Jilly Mackay brought forward. There's been a lot of topic. Uh, well, there's been a lot of talk about um, councils enacting bylaws, causes legal advice. Council saying that that would be unlawful. However, certain councils, like in Glasgow, I think quite recently, um, people uh, I think. Councillors were writing to Glasgow City Councils to enact said bylaws. Um, now, whether this happens or not is still a topic of contention because we still don't know if it's still possible uh, because that legal advice only kind of pertained to a certain council. I think it was Edinburgh. Um, so that might change. Uh, and Gillian Mackay is largely in favour. She supports people kind of acting out and uh, and acting for to, to try and create these bylaws. Um but she said the the bill in general, because it's a nat- national approach, would be the easiest step forward. But it's all a, the, all the eyes on this bill and whether or not it passes is on areas such as what we've seen in Northern Ireland. Um, we've seen the Attorney General um, ask the Supreme Court to consider whether um, it is in proportionate that the bill that they proposed in buffer zones is in proportionate interference, I think, with um, the right to protest and things like that that are protected under the ECHR. So Scotland's got their eyes on what's happening elsewhere with buffer zones to make sure that it's as robust as it can be. That's the government's argument. But as you can imagine, so many campaign groups, so many women who have gone through abortions who have had to and still have to deal with these campaign groups like 40 Days for Life um, are, are really, really struggling. It's important to mention that 40 Days for Life and groups such as SPUC don't see protests as protests, although they, uh, SPUC agreed with me that uh, on the definition of protest and also the definition of what was happening outside the hospital, which was a protest. But they, they claim that it's a peaceful vigil. Um, they claim that they are offering women an alternative solution but a lot of medical health experts have told me that that solution is concerning and worrying to them. Um, they don't know kind of if there's been, yeah, if there's been discussions which would, would give women misinformation and certain medical treatment that they could attain. And that's really been brought out by certain comments from uh, MSPs such as John Mason, uh, who questioned um, medical health experts on whether or not informed consent was attained uh, from yeah from uh, from abortion people who were going through an abortion um, service whether NHS staff were were attaining that informed consent uh, and 
recently we got uh, Jason Leach and uh, Gregor Smith writing uh, to Monica Lennon who asked um, these two men to give assurance or these two officials to give assurances um, as to whether informed consent was given and or was attained and both of them said of course it is uh, there's absolutely no evidence and uh, no basis for uh, John Mason's claims so there's a real concern for misinformation going around um, for certain kind of yeah politics within the SNP you've got quite a uh, conservative religious uh, views conservative with a small c uh, from members such as uh, Kate Forbes uh, John Mason, uh, you can see them very, very quiet when buffer zones is mentioned, uh, but Nicola Sturgeon being quite quite strong and adamant of supporting um, buffer zones. It's just whether or not it'll be implemented. Sorry, that was such a roundup. Uh, there's just so much to talk about. Uh, um, and yeah, it's a real point of contention for a lot of women in, in Scotland. Deeply embarrassing, isn't it, for Nicola Sturgeon to have an MSP such as John Mason on Twitter talking about abortion as if he's um, living in the far right, deep south of the US. Oh, totally. And I think there's a real concern uh, that actually Gillian Mackay brought up with um, what's happening with Roe versus Wade, with that decision potentially being overturned in America, that we are kind of echoing uh, similar behaviours and attitudes within politicians such as John Mason, um, you know, Gillian McCaw is quite adamant saying, you know, Scotland's been forward thinking with uh, women's health care. We should continue to do so. But this could be a real topic where we could fall or a real issue that we could fall back on um, on women's health care and access to, 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 to vital services for a lot of women. Great. Well, let, let's uh, we'll, we'll obviously get more information about those plans as and when, particularly the Supreme Court, as you mentioned. Um, you know, judge on on the on the legality of the Northern Irish plans. Um, I wanted to talk about Anna Sawa um, and Anna Sawa's pledge pre-election about council collations. This is slightly nerdy, um, but I think it's worth us going into. Um, Alistair, can you take us through what Anna Sawa said pre-election and what has happened post-election? Uh, well, Anna Sarwar, the Scottish Labour leader, essentially said that he essentially ruled out formal coalitions with other parties uh, at local authority level, um, particularly the SNP and the Tories. Um, but as everyone knows, or as a lot of people listening to this probably certainly know, uh, councils have a kind of STV proportional representation system. So it's just extremely unlikely that parties will get overall majorities. So at local authority level, it is commonplace for parties to work together. And in fact, the system's kind of designed for that to happen. It's designed for parties to work together and to kind of come to arrangements. Um, so a lot of people saw this as kind of sort of undermining local democracy in a way, but also just completely unfeasible and playing on the fact that people don't really, maybe a lot of people in Scotland aren't that familiar with the, the kind of system of voting in councils. Council elections aren't as high profile as Holyrood in general elections. Um, so it's kind of playing off that, in a sense, it's confusing the issue. Uh, and I think it's, it's created this situa situation now where we've got a slightly ridiculous situation. So I think, for example, uh, I hope I'm right when I say this, but I think South Lanarkshire, for example, has an arrangement now where it's a Labour-led administration in partnership, quote-unquote partnership, with the Lib Dems mm. and I think an independent councillor as well. And, you know, they stress it's not a coalition, it's a partnership. But it's just like, well... <sighs> What is the difference really on the ground in practice? And why are we just splitting hairs over this? It just seems entirely pointless. 
Um, and it just, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I know this is something you've written about, Connor. Uh, so you might want to give your own views on it because I know it frustrates you. But it's just, it's not helpful when we're talking about local democracy and we're talking about council elections to create this confusing situation and to kind of undermine what councils are there to do, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it, dr- it drives me fundamentally up the wall because I think I, 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 I think that it's dishonest actually from from Manasar. I think he's his biggest problem now, um, and I think he's he's doing a huddle later today. You know, before um, before this podcast comes out, so we don't know what he's what he's going to say. Um, but he's going to do a huddle. You know, celebrating the South Lanarkshire deal. Um, you know, and he'll have to claim on the record to journalists that this isn't a coalition or it isn't a formal deal. And that is fundamental nonsense. You know, having arguments based on semantics is is the lowest of the low, I think, when it comes to, to, to politics. You're either honest with people and, and voters before an election about what a pledge means, or you're just trying to play games. And I think, yeah, I, I, wrote, I wrote a piece in, in The Scotsman yesterday that, um, you know, about the fact that I think Labour have completely tied themselves in knots over this. And... I, I think the critical thing I want to say is that you know there's no issue with the, with Labour doing deals with the Lib Dems or Labour doing deals with the Tories or you know <laughs> independent councillors or even the SNP doing a deal with the Labour with Labour Party or even the Tory Party, but you have to be honest about what your approach is, and you know quibbling over the semantics of whether or not, for example, in South Lanarkshire, a deal to give um, to to get Labour in as a minority. Um, coalition alongside two other parties, or in Stirling, um, for example, um, where the Tory uh, the Tories have ended up being becoming Lord uh, Lord Provost, um, you know, which is a highly ceremonial position, but in reality, it's a leadership position as well. Um, you know that that's a that's a that's a deal in all but name, right? And Labour, I think, have tied themselves in knots over this for the reason that they constantly talk about the SNP Green cooperation agreement let's not forget then they play semantics as well <laughs> but that that cooperation agreement is the coalition coalition of chaos for labor right that's the that's the argument from from scottish labor so either what they do at local government is the same or they're being dishonest to voters i think it's the latter and i think it's embarrassing for scotland to be in a situation where constitutional politics is completely ruined reasonable approaches to local government it drives me completely up the wall and i think anasar has shown himself to be a little bit um distrustful um i don't i think he he's he in a lot of places where people have maybe voted for labor in the hope that you know they'll they work with the with another progressive party um you know quote unquote progressive if you like um i think he he's lost he's potentially lost a lot of credibility there um Take, for example, Edinburgh. Um, Edinburgh is a fascinating city on local government. It's also the capital. It's arguably the flagship council in in the country um, alongside Glasgow. And we have a situation in Edinburgh where because Labour, who gained councillors um, in, ele- in the last election, won't work with the SNP, who they were in administration with um, for the last you know, five years, Despite that kind of like approval of their per, of their last five years in that that administration, because of that, we're in the position where no one's running Edinburgh Council, and it looks like that's that standoff is going to be the case for potentially you know a month or so, and that is utterly ludicrous, and it's 
I do think, I think I tweeted yesterday, you know, any party that goes into a local election that claims it won't do deals with any others, you know, anyone um, post-election either doesn't understand single transferable vote and how that works or thinks voters won't notice or care when those deals are done. And that's not good enough. Neither of that, that is good enough. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 quite interesting because um, I was there when uh, Ada Sarwar announced that there is absolutely going to be no coalitions, um, even using the words deals and stuff as well, was kind of laced into that when he announced that with Keir Starmer um, just in the outskirts of Glasgow uh, during the election campaign corner there. Um, and I'm, I'm also off to, to sunny Glasgow, uh, sunny Glasgow, sunny Hamilton to see him today. I'm so used to being so sunny here in Glasgow. Um, but yeah, so it'll be really, really interesting to see what what he says. Um, and we're going to kind of, like like you said, would it's it's almost, it reminds me of that Shakespeare line, what is it, would a rose by any other name smell as sweet, but maybe would a rose by Scottish Labour's name smell maybe more sour because as you say we, we we've maybe kind of been mis our labor have maybe been misleading people in these kind of games of semantics as you called it uh connor uh and it's just yeah it's just really it's really odd it's really peculiar i guess the what i'd say to play devil's advocate is that labor has tried to maybe stand out, show that they're stronger. And yeah, in areas like Fife, for example, there was a joint agreement previously between SNP and Labour. Now you've got someone like, I think it's David Ross, who's the council leader in Fife now, who's now the council leader with um, David Alexander coming in as his opposition. Um, so I guess you could argue, and this is just totally to be devil's advocate, it has changed slightly in the way that it's being run and the way that they're kind of approaching it and that they're trying to show that they're a wee bit more of their own, uh, that they can hold their own. It's still a game of, I, I think, as you mentioned, semantics, and it is a wee bit misleading um, to to kind of what, what they originally said in the run-up to their campaign trail and, like, the whole robustness of that. It was just, I mean, as soon as you heard that, you knew that that was never going to be the case, almost. It, it just, as, as we mentioned with how STV runs, it, it's just totally impractical. That's what everyone is kind of, yeah, kind of nodding their heads, going, hmm? "What's this?" I, th- I, th- I think, I think the, the the thing is right is that there's nothing wrong, and this is this is perhaps what you know people misunderstand. You know, the SNP are angry about what Labour are doing because Labour are deciding to work with other parties. Mm. They're pissed off that Labour aren't working with them and aren't getting the SNP into positions of power, right? The SNP can complain all they like, but STV is designed so that you have cross-party working and whoever strikes the best deal gets in, right? So the SNP, I think, are being slightly dishonest about where (laughs) their anger is coming from. You know, um, so we put that to one side. I think the, the, the critical thing here is like minority administrations are fine. You know, you that happens across the country, um, even I think the SNP Labour administration in Edinburgh, for example, operated on a minority basis for for months, if not all five years. Um, and you know that the, the the deals that are being done at local government level, you know, between the Tories and the Lib Dems and the SNP or Labour or whoever, is how it should be. The problem is that Labour aren't honest about it, and that they're not honest about the fact that you know. A deal, for example, to put in place a conservative provost 
you know, the idea that that's not a formal deal is nonsense. You know, you don't just have, um, <laughs> you might end up running the council on a slightly more issue by issue basis, but fundamentally you've implant, you've put someone there on a formal basis, on a formal position. And I think that that's where the issue rises. It's and- probably worth saying that why, one of the reasons why Labour have done this though, I mean, it's because mm. traditionally one of their weaknesses has been, particularly in general elections, that the narrative has been that Labour will enter into some kind of agreement with another party. For example, you've got that famous picture uh, with Alex Salmond and I think it was whoever it was at the time, Ed Miliband in his pocket. Um, and it's it's that that they're trying to get away from. So they're taking this national narrative and putting it on to council elections so they can then say that they, you know, they don't enter into coalitions and agreements with other parties in that sense. I think Politically, it makes sense. I, I, think, that's, I think that's fair. And Sarwar was always, you know, during the election, he, I mean, well, much of the time when he said this, he was always quite careful to say formal coalitions or deals because he knows himself that more informal agreements are going to happen. There's nothing you can do about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. They're not the only ones that play this game. So, And then that's when, with, with the whole formal and then informal, you've got opposition parties like SNP kind of accusing uh, Labour of back backhand and backroom antics, I think, is, is something that was mentioned in FMQs, right, with the uh, the Tory coalition. And, and and I guess in Fife, uh, even though I kind of mentioned the SNP and Labour there, what you've got there is a Labour, Lib Dems and Conservatives deal in, in Fife, which is really interesting. So even though I was trying to play devil's advocate earlier on, you've still got this issue where the Labour, who are very kind of anti kind of all this formal coalition and deals have now brought in conservatives, you could argue, into a time where it used to be a joint agreement between Labour and SNP. So there are issues there. And yeah, I, I, what what did you make of FMQs when they were accused of back romantics um, and SNP saying it's totally unforgivable? I, I just think it's a complete waste of time because it's what should happen, yeah, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. And I think I think I think Alistair makes a really good point on, you know, the politically Labour are trying to put them forward as themselves as an alternative um to the SNP, which is why they're not doing any deals with the SNP in particular. Particularly they're not doing any backroom deals with the SNP at all. They're doing lots of deals with the Tories. They want to be in the position where in twenty twenty four they can go, we're a you know, we are our own thing, as as you say, Alistair, in the sense that, you know, we don't do deals with, with people, so we're no threat to the union. That's what they want for 2024. For 2026, they want to be in a position where, you know, they're going, actually, we're we're a complete alternative. Here are our, here's our five years of minority working, you know, or, or council leadership in, in various parts of the country. Um, the problem is, I just think that's dishonest. Um, but I do, I do think that... Um, you know, when it com- when it comes to coalitions and deals and the semantics around it, um, I would be keeping a very close eye on what George Redmond, who hilariously uh, missed his first per- in- in-person council meeting after becoming Scottish Labour leader in Glasgow because he was stuck in an airport coming back from Seville um, after the <laughs> Europa League final. Um, but I would keep a very close eye on how Labour approach that deal between the SNP and the Greens because the SNP and the Greens are leading that council in the same way that Labour are doing in various other councils across the country. And if Glasgow Labour start talking about that being a coalition, they've shown themselves to be a completely dishonest party when it comes to local politics. 
there you have it there you go there's my rant over <laughs> um it's it's it's, it's uh, as alistair said i think when asking me it's, it's something i have strong feelings on if you can't tell <laughs> could never guess no um well let, let's uh, speak to alex now um about the latest partygate revelations so alex moving on to the big westminster story of the week which is obviously the conclusion of the Mets investigation into Partygate. Uh, get us up to date with, with what's going on. So the Met have finished their investigations. Um, the Prime Minister has overseen a, a tight ship with just 126 fines being issued to staff in Downing Street. Though, most interestingly, he's not getting any more. Uh, so junior aides have been handed them in spades for attending events the Prime Minister he himself was at. But for some reason, the guy who had a special legal counsel uh, and is the boss has not get, is not getting any more fines, whereas lots of more junior staff are doing so. So it is, I mean, between this and Everton staying up, it's been a fantastic week for the Conservatives. Um, it's very, very interesting. And I think it's probably, he's fairly safe now for just a little bit longer. It's respite. It's not over. And it doesn't change the fact that he's, you know, the only prime minister to get fined and break the rules he made. But it's a lot harder now for rebels to go, well, hold on. He's done this so many times. He's a repeat offender. So now all eyes are on the Sue Gray report, which is likely to come out probably Tuesday or Wednesday next week, we expect. Um, and is tipped to be fairly damning. And she's hoping to name names. So he may have won uh, the battle, um, but, you know, the war has just begun. So do we do we reckon that I I, I don't know what uh, there's lots of debate and you know comments from various people about why he's not been fined for certain events you know it seems a bit baffling that he because he seems to have appeared or at least attended several events that people have been fined at but hasn't been fined at himself um, and there was talk from the Met that they've you know discuss things about whether or not it was someone's home or not and all of these sorts of issues you know what what's the What's the kind of explanation from Downing Street about why he's not been fined for some of these that were clearly law-breaking events? Well, obviously, Downing Street don't like to explain anything. Um, it's all it's all spin, and they're just happy to say, you know, we're glad the, the thing is over, um, the report is done. But the accepted logic seems to be, because it was in his house, as it were, he can have a, he can have a reasonably, ex- uh, he can reasonably be expected to be at those events. So even though he went to an ABBA party... Uh, you know, where, the, where ABBA music was blaring out, this infamous event held in Downing Street, uh, or in, in the flat above, he's not getting fined for that because it's where he sleeps and lives, so he's allowed to be there. Um, it's it's really odd. The Met have absolutely disgraced themselves with this whole thing. They've handled it really badly. Um, and I th- what is interesting is I don't think this I don't think this doesn't mean that he goes because. I thought this, I thought, you know, the party would be enough of a reason, but actually it's going to be everything else because between this and the cost of living, the fact he's facing potentially two by, I mean, two by-elections, which you'd think they'd lose at least one of. Um, and also all the polling shows that now Labour are the party trusted more on the economy than Conservatives. If the Conservatives aren't trusted in the economy at a time when they're raising everyone's taxes, what, what are they for? So it... It's been a re- this is like a respite. This is a rare bit of good news for an administration that is struggling to keep MPs on side. But this this will keep one aspect of the rebels who are annoyed about Partygate on side. Those who hate the fiscal policy and those who want more and more of a windfall tax, which includes many in the cabinet, 
um, are still being held together by, you know, silly slogans and sellotape. So it's a good week for the prime minister, but he is still in real, real trouble. So what, what's the what's the kind of intelligence, if you like, from backbench Tory MPs? Are they pissed off? Are they happy? Are they, you know, just seeing it as, you know, business as usual for this government? And presumably the big issue is that there's no one there ready to get going. I think it was George Osborne on Twitter who said that, you know, what what will what the real political question here is whether or not anyone can has the cojones, if you like, to challenge the PM rather than, you know, the, the party realising that he's not, not fit for purpose? Well, I think Jeremy Hunt um, has privately were telling colleagues that his leadership, you know, bid, him you know, asking about support is, is done. He's not going to be pushing anymore. Um, not that I think he ever had a real chance, but there was movement towards that. Other MPs, I think, are just relieved it's over. But, you know, you speak to them and I've spoke to more than one MP said to me, who are supporters of the Prime Minister, or uh, maybe they're a little less supportive now, but they said, you know what, the lying is priced in. We know he's a liar, but he's always been an electoral force, so it's fine. If it, if he's not an electoral force, which with a history, you know, with a, a, a flurry of recent by-election defeats and more on the horizon, then he's in trouble. Um, but right now, I think they just, ha- they want to get on with the cost of living and hear something from the government, because it's one thing to go to a constituents and defend Partygate, it's another to explain to them why the government is going to let them go hungry um, and, you know, let them have to ration toilet paper, like we heard people are doing uh, in the chamber at PMQs uh, this week. And what what about Labour? It's, it's all, We're in the position where it's almost ludicrous to suggest it, but uh, or would have been ludicrous to suggest it a few months ago, but that they, they are the most likely uh, people to end up resigning over, over Partygate. I mean, it now looks a gross miscalculation from Starmer, which is not necessarily... He wasn't alone in thinking that, right? We all thought the Prime Minister should obviously go. He'd broken the rules. More fines were going to come because he's at the events. We know he's at the events. Uh, it seems natural that he would get fined for it. Um, and so the I think that the, one of the issues cited is why there hadn't been those, so a lack of photographs. And Starmer is pictured with a beer. He did pose for pictures with people who were going past um, who had football shirts and he took a picture with them. But that can still be counted as work. So speaking to Labour people this week, they're a bit worried about it. One said to me, you know, well, actually, would it be so much of a disaster if he went? Um, they're not the most supportive MP of, of Sakir. Almost said Prime Minister then. So I'm so, no, I'm so <laughs> in tune to hear talking about MPs who don't support the Prime Minister. Um, he said, you know, would it, you know, and they also thought that perhaps Rayner had been bounced into it by uh, Keir's office, not as an act of solidarity to show that they're both up front, but, you know, if I go, I'm dragging you down with me. So there are now nerves because only one of them is now being investigated by the police. And Boris gets a fine and Tory MPs go, meh, okay, let's see what else we can do. Whereas if Keir gets a fine, that's all she wrote, leadership contest, up steps Wes, and we go, they still haven't had a woman and it's happened again. Do, do, do you think that um, we're in the? Is, is this issue of you know that the left often has, which is you know the holier than thou um, approach of politics, which is you know we'll, we'll die on our principles rather than you know maybe think about the political opportunity that is just you know doing what the Tories do because clearly the, the electorate doesn't seem to care. Um, yeah, I think so often the left try and hold themselves to a higher standard, right, and think that they are the good ones. Uh, and the Tories are the bad ones. And we saw 
under Corbyn, that that maybe wasn't the case when uh, complaints of anti-Semitism were being dismissed. Luciana Berger had death threats made against her that she didn't know about. Corbyn's office did. And it only came out when it was leaked to LBC. So it's not that simple. But the left, they really like to think themselves as good guys and hold themselves to high standards when the game is rigged. Like it's not, if you are on the left in the, in, in the UK, you, you have to, there is an understanding that there is an advantage priced in for the other side. That's not to say that the left are the good ones or that they have the better answers. But when you look at uh, the media and the standards that they are both held to, the game is rigged. Conservatives, uh, when you ask them about Boris earlier on in the year, would go, you know, fundamentally, it's all, I don't like any of it, but the Conservative Party's main, its sole purpose is to maintain itself in government. Whereas if, you know, and that's an MP openly saying, all they want to do is win. That's everything to them. You know, it's a one nil away is fine. I, I don't care. Come off the knee, just win. Whereas Labour think they have to win with the best principles. They've got to be the best people. Um, and they hold themselves to higher standard. And they're going to shoot themselves in the foot again. Um it's if they get away with it, it's great. Sakiyas comes out looking much stronger, but in a time when the media are more sympathetic to the right uh, and spent eight days talking about Partygate, but gave a splash saying about uh, Boris, don't they know there's a war on? And then never mentioned the Ukraine war on the front page since that. Um, it's silly. You've got you've got to be a bit braver. You've got to be a bit savvier. And we will continue to have Tory governments forever uh, until they wise up and focus on winning rather than just being right. What, what's the what's the next steps? Obviously, Sue Gray's report is on the way. There's talk of it being published next week. Um, what's likely to happen? When when should we expect it? So it's, the Sue Gray report um, is probably going to come on Tuesday or Wednesday. We will hear uh, it's going to be fairly damning. All the I mean, I don't know how much you can how much stock you can put into leaks about a supposed private report, but the suggestions from some of the newspapers this week is that the pressure on her not to name names and to make it a bit softer. Is only going to make this negative energy only makes her stronger, um, and that she'll be even more damning. So it'll come, come on Wednesday. There'll be a huge fallout. I would love it if it came up before Prime Minister's questions. That'd be very helpful to, to me. It'd be helpful to the Labour Party. It'd be just great to write it so I like, know what happens in advance of that, because then it'd be a lot more fun session rather than you know the drab affair that it so often is. Um, and then I mean that'd be it really. I mean if it, if it's really bad about the Prime Minister, then maybe things are a little less easier than they were. But at the moment, it feels like this has gone the sum uh, of nowhere. Do I suppose the, the the final question is: is do do you think there's any threat that to the prime minister's position? Because obviously, the question the question previously was: oh, he'll have to resign if he gets fined. He hasn't resigned, even though he's been fined. You know, the the next question is: oh, well, the Sue Gray report is going to be so damning that he's going to have to resign. Um, will he resign? And then the third, you know, the final aspect of all of this is: has he misled Parliament over all of this? And would he resign because of that? I mean, do 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 you think that there's any chance of him bothering to resign, if you like, um, or do you think he'll just try and ride it out um, and hope for the best? Because it seems that that like that's been priced in by MPs. He will try and ride it out, but I can't stress enough: we're going to have a by-election for an MP uh, convicted of, uh, you know child abuse as it was you know we're going we've got a by-election for a tory mp uh who was watching porn at work after saying he was looking at tractors um and then we also have in Sumpton and Froome an mp who has been accused of uh, well he's been photographed with what appears to be cocaine uh, and is accused of harassing staff who wrote that he would be returning to parliament when it came back to sitting and he is still not there 
Um, and I mean, the room of the chat this week is that there are more allegations to come out about other MPs. There are still, I think, uh, 56 complaints have been made, including about cabinet ministers. So even if he's escaped this, the culture and those and then if they lose those seats, he, he, what's he there for? Because he's not winning. What's the benefit to having Boris Johnson at that point? You can go, OK, so that's hurt us. There's no answer to the cost of living and we are losing seats. So he is still very much at risk. It's just, this isn't going to be the knockout blow. He is bloodied, but still standing. And once again, Captain Hindsight comes to this house and attacks the government for doing exactly what he urged us to do 18 months ago. Uh, Lots of words, lots of bluster, no answers. Prime Minister, that's not going to work with the police. (laughs) Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? (laughs) This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman.